Hi, this is Day for Night with Caridad Slitch, a series that looks at the intersection between theater and poetry, in the edgelands, in the wilderness. In today's episode, uh, I'm actually going to read an essay by the writer Alyssa Harad. The essay is called To Live in an Ending, in the Ending, To Live the Ending. It was published in the Kenyan Review in July, August, 2022. And um, I just love this essay incredibly. And I read it over and over and over again <laughs> to myself. And it just feels like a balm uh, during these incredibly, really troubled times. Uh, and so I thought, as I occasionally do on this podcast, I would... Um, bring it into the world, read it, and share it with you in case you haven't come across it. So uh, as always, when, I, when I'm when i here on the podcast, I read it in one go. Uh, so there might be little stumbles across the way. Um, bear with me if that happens. This is To Live in the Ending by Alyssa Harad. One, the first time. The first time I saw the world and I was eight years old. It began peacefully enough. I sat in a well-padded chair in the dark with the rest of my second grade class. All of us tilted back, faces turned up to the white dome of the ceiling. We watched it shade into blue dusk, the stars and the planets coming out one by one. Soon we were under the clearest, blackest, brightest night sky any of us had seen shining with an impossible number of stars. Over a shimmering electronic soundtrack, a disembodied male voice, like the voice of God, led us on a tour of ghostly nebulae and puzzling constellations. The comforting Milky River arcing above our heads, the voice explained, was a small piece of our galaxy. Then we began to travel. Up and out we went, rushing past Red Mars and Jupiter's angry eye, big enough, we were told, to hold many Earths. We, scum, we skimmed around Saturn's dazzling rings and swung past cold, tiny Pluto out into the endless universe. When the voice decided we had gone far enough, we still turned and saw the tiny swirl of our galaxy, just another bit of brightness in the dark. Then we rushed back in again, back to Earth, our perspective tilting and shifting. The voice deepened, the spectral music changed and swelled into orchestral chords. Our hour was drawing to a close. We were headed toward the big finish, a story about the sun. The sun, the God voice told us, was an average middle-aged star, burning at a steady middling heat. As the sun aged, the voice continued, it would expand into a bloated, gaseous red giant. The music got louder, and the cold white fire of the sun warmed and turned an angry orange-red. Though all our short lives we had been told not to, we stared into the heart of it. As the sun swells, the voice intoned, it will swallow up the planets nearest to it. And now the sun was breaking out in spots and storms. It was taking up half the sky. First Mercury, said the voice, and red fire swept across the orange surface, fire on fire, and then Venus. And now the sun filled the entire sky. And then Earth, said the voice, and the music raged, and we were engulfed in flames. Late that night, long after I had been sent to bed, 
My little brother heard me crying and ran upstairs to tell my father, who came into my dark room and sat on my bed to ask me why. Don't worry, he said when I broke the bad news. That won't happen for a very long time. How long, I wanted to know. Millions of years, he said, then added, you and I will be gone by then. Which is how the first time I mourned the end of the world became the first time I hoped I would die before it happened. Two, the end of the world walks into a bar. Now, 35 years later, it's 2013, I'm sitting in a Brooklyn bar with a writer friend arguing about the end of the world. The apocalypse, my friend insists, is the wrong story to tell about climate change. It's self-serving, exploitative, clickbait rhetoric that both paralyzes people with fear and excuses them from action. Many, many people will die, he says bitterly, but the world will not end. It may be irreparably changed, but will go on without us. He drains the rest of his beer, brings the empty glass down on the bar, hard and fast. I understood what he was saying. The language of the apocalypse is dangerous because it is the language of divine fatalism. There is a great deal of work to do, and as climate change continues, there will be even more. We need to keep our heads clear, and we can't do that. They are full of hell flames, angry gods, and devouring serpents. And yet, and yet. You live in New York, I say to my friends. I live in Texas. In the calmest of times, we are a Christ-haunted, boomer-bust, tall tales, and end-time state. And these are not calm times. In 2011, in my head it is yesterday, in my head it is still happening, our long-running drought became so severe that ranchers shot their cattle rather than watch them starve for lack of grass. Lake waters receded, revealing dead fish, rusted cars, the bones from decades-old unsolved murders. As the days of triple-digit temperatures stretched into a third straight month, power stations reeled and buckled under the demand for air conditioning, and there were rolling blackouts. Stressed by the heat, Trees bloomed furiously out of season, then wilted and lost their leaves. Grass turned to tinder, and wildfires flared up daily, sparked not just by the usual tossed cigarettes, careless campers, and dry lightning, but by the slightest of touches. Hot undercarriages of trucks and cars brushing against grass, static or electrical lines. By the end of the season, three million acres an area the size of Connecticut, had been reduced to ash. One of the largest and hottest of the fires burned in Bastrop County, a 45-minute drive from my house in Austin. For over a month, black clouds of smoke bloomed on the horizon. Every morning I woke with a sore throat, my hair smelling like a campfire, and prayed that the wind wouldn't change. The fire jumped rivers and roads, and the people who lived closest to it were evacuated. More than 1,600 people lost their homes, their land, their animals. A beloved state park, a shady refuge, became an unrelieved stretch of black. In places, the heat was so intense, the silica in the soil melted and fused into a glassy, infertile scar. The same summer, a fiery red dust cloud a mile and a half wide rolled into Lubbock, 
and blocked out the sun for three weeks. Three weeks under a red sky, the gritty dust covering every surface, settling in ears and eyes, grinding between teeth. Lubbock is prone to dust storms, and residents are accustomed to dealing with them, but this one, they all agreed, was different. In the local paper, a man caught outside when the cloud rolled in described the speed of the change. The way the sky was blue, then red. The way a street full of houses disappeared in seconds, swallowed by the dust. It felt, he said, like the end of the world. Now, even as I'm telling all this to my friend, I realize that New York has its own version of the story, that while I am remember remembering drought and fire, my friend is remembering wind and water, rivers flooding their banks, the sandy, driven sea slamming into the shore. I think of a photograph I saw. A Manhattan subway elevator, doors open, a wall of water pouring into the station, and another taken by a friend a block away from her West Village apartment. The front wall of a building shorn away by the storm, the apartments inside exposed, beds, wallpaper, and old TV, a dollhouse of disaster. I am not sure I know how to unbraid the language of the apocalypse from all this and still have a voice left to speak to you. Three, lettuce. And yet, and yet, just outside the apocalyptic frame is another story about 2011. One I don't know where to put. One I always tell. In the middle of that Texas summer of drought and fire, I went to the grocery store. Outside, the city was half dead from shimmering heat, all brown lawns and dying trees, smoke in the air. Then the automatic door slid open, and I stepped into the cool green world of the produce section. As I stood there, shivering in the blast of air conditioning, the automatic misters hissed on to refresh the beautiful rows of lettuces, cabbages, and kale, now sparkling and beaded with water, obscenely lush, wet, and alive. And it was suddenly very clear to me that none of this was real. The water, the rows of produce, the trucks that delivered them, the artificially cool air, none of it could last. It was already disappearing. It felt, it still feels like the world is being hollowed out from the inside, becoming the thinnest, most brittle of scrims. One day, I will touch it, and it will shatter under my hand. Me and my apocalypse. I began writing this essay shortly after that 2013 conversation in the bar. Now, back then, I had the idea that it would be, that it could be, a kind of archaeology of personal end times mythology. Me and my apocalypse. <laughs> I wanted to go beyond the shared Hollywood lexicon of end time fantasies. The arrival of alien beings, the rock or comet or missile hurtling toward us from space, New York drowned, New York blown up, LA swallowed by earthquake or tidal wave, LA in a perpetual post apocalyptic rain. It's always New York and L.A. at the end of the world. I wanted instead to dig for the kind of half-forgotten stories that run our lives. The personal grammar we use to make sense of the disappearing world. Maybe then I thought I could find a language 
beyond the rhetoric of apocalypse. I began by making a list of every time I had been told the world would end. Uh, I remembered hazily my fear of the growing hole in the ozone layer, which I envisioned as a hungry black spot devouring a golden fog that enclosed Earth. I remembered vivid nightmares about acid rain, which had gotten mixed up in my mind with the all-devouring thread from Anne McCaffrey's dragon fantasy novels, silver rain hissing through the great pine forest, leaving nothing but burned black skeletons, like the ones I saw after summer wildflowers, wildfires ripped through the Idaho trees of my childhood. I remembered most of all the fear of nuclear war that accompanied me all through my 1980s adolescence. And by the time I was 11, I knew that the Russians had missiles pointed at us. There were maps, like the flight maps and airplane seat pockets, that showed the trajectories of the missiles from Russia to the U.S. and vice versa. Long, overlapping arcs that never came anywhere near Boise, but that were me anyway. By 14, I had seen film footage of mushroom clouds. My friends and I pretended to have believed that the huge, round, concrete structures in the park where we hung out were missile bunkers. By 16 and 17, I knew a little of what the U.S. had done to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Nuclear disaster was the story underneath all the Hollywood stories, moving from government to the movies and back, in an endless, self-enforcing loop. The only defense plan on offer, nicknamed for a space movie co-starring two robots. I was shocked when the nightmare of nuclear apocalypse came roaring back to life in the early days of the Trump administration, but I shouldn't have been. Trump never truly left the 1980s, just as Reagan never stepped outside the Manifest Destiny story of his days as a Hollywood cowboy. It's an easy step from these fantasies to unimaginably rich white men building private rockets to launch themselves into space. I wonder if they grew up hearing the same story I heard in the planetarium all those years ago. The story of a devouring sun and an earth destined to be swallowed. 5. Bay Windows and Bookshelves Another memory kept nudging at me, sitting uneasily next to the bombs, holes, and devouring rains on my list. Over and over again, I saw in my mind one of the round wooden tables at the edge of my college dining room where I took refuge from the long communal tables in the center. On it was a copy of Boston's gay newsletter, Bay Windows. I remember the pleasure of getting the joke of the name, feeling on the inside of things. My dorm was a center of queer culture on campus. I was 19 and nearly in love with a world that would mark me deeply in the years to come. Eager to learn, I picked up the newspaper and began reading it. It was 24 pages long. I do not remember the first eight. The next 16 were obituaries, page after page of tributes and death announcements. It took me a moment to understand what I was reading. I kept turning the pages, waiting for the section to end. I mean, technically, I knew what AIDS was. A popular science magazine I subscribed to as a teen had done a cover story on it. I still remember the line drawings of the virus that illustrated the piece. But I was straight, white, and middle class. And I had been living far away from the waves of loss, grief, anger, and activism that rocked America's queer urban centers. 
I didn't personally know anyone who was sick or dying, or so I thought at the time. In many ways, those 16 pages were the first real news I'd received of a story that is still coming down to me in waves of absence, truncated possibility, marks left on the lives of friends as the global AIDS pandemic continues. The story of how the AIDS pandemic played out in the United States in its first decade and continues to play out globally offers as much or more insight into how and why the world might end than any of the end time myths and realities of my childhood and adolescence. The fear, confusion, and denial of the general public, the vicious lies and disinformation campaigns of those in power, the way some populations were shielded from harm, while those who bore the worst of the pain and loss were blamed and stigmatized, the war between politics and science, the fact that the basic research needed to intervene could have been completed long ago, the fact that the majority of the death, loss, and suffering was caused by human cruelty and greed, the wild creativity, rage, persistence, pain, and tenderness of those who fought for recognition, care, and action. It's all too familiar. But what I really want to say is this. When I finally turned away from the more obvious catastrophe narratives, and it did feel like a physical pivot, I could see what should have been clear to me all along. Worlds end all the time. Worlds end all the time. It was the thing for a few years in my corner of the literary world to speak urgently about the need for a literature of climate change. The job of the writer, their argument went, was to help readers imagine the unimaginable, to fill a shelf that was bare. But the shelves I could see now were not bare. They were cramped, full of stories written by survivors of lost worlds. The literature of diaspora, of genocide, of indigenous worlds, of migration and gentrification, of colonization, of lost cities and shattered ideals, the literature of forgotten languages and recovered myths. There are countless post-apocalyptic peoples, and they have been trying to tell us what it is like to lose a world for a very long time. Six. And then we wept. Perhaps you are waiting for me to talk about science. You know, for years I was waiting too. I felt I had to master the literature before I could say anything about climate change. But when I tried to read the latest reports, my eyes slid off the page, glazed over, filled with the fog of apocalypse. I sought out headlines that confirmed my nightmares and turned away, impatient with the details, eager to get back to the work of fear, and mourning. When I could not look at the science, I looked at the scientists. Around 2005, I was hired by an alumni magazine uh, to write a puff piece on the university's biology department. Cheery, bragging, thumbnail portraits of faculty research interests. But the only thing the biologists wanted to talk about was the end of the world. The organisms 
they had spent their lives studying were dying, disappearing. And their new work was to track this death. We call it documenting the decline, one of them told me. Their voices were like nothing I had heard before. Grim, determined, urgent, and despairing. After that, I began listening for the sadness of scientists, the flashes of anger and grief breaking through their empiricism, their carefully rational public voices. It was a sound that got louder and louder until finally it filled the 2016 Washington Post headline. And then we wept. Scientists saw, say, 93% of the Great Barrier Reef now bleached. The weeping placed before the facts, as though it were real news. 7. Resurrecting Extinct Vibrations When I think of writers who know how to hold this kind of grief, hold it, shape it, and hand it back to us, I think of C.A. Conrad, a critically acclaimed poet, working-class itinerant teacher, activist, and queer mystic. Conrad makes poetry out of trauma, rage, ritual, and love. They grew up in a family of factory workers in a town where the Ku Klux Klan was active. A difficult childhood that ended when they were outed as a teen and ran away to Philadelphia, arriving in the thick of the AIDS crisis. They became an activist for queer and racial justice and spent the following years helping the sick and dying who would, in better times, have been their mentors and chosen family. They estimate that up to 80% of everyone they knew from those years died. In 1998, Conrad's boyfriend at the time, Mark Holmes, renamed himself Earth and moved to Tennessee to a queer community to work the land. While there, he was tortured and brutally murdered in the cave where he went each day to meditate. Ignoring the coroner's report and Conrad's furious questions, the local police insisted Earth's death was a suicide. His, murderer, his murderers have never been charged. In an interview with David Naimon for the Between the Covers podcast, Conrad describes making the connection between what happened to Earth, who was bound, beaten, and burned, and the way humans have treated our planet. They wanted to write from this place, they told Naimon but didn't want the work to stay in the horror. How is it possible to stay with the trouble without staying in the horror? For decades, Conrad's answer has been to bring themselves back to the radical present of their own body through ritual. For the most recent book, Amanda Paradise, Resurrect Extinct Vibration, they began by assembling field recordings of animals who had gone extinct, or nearly extinct, within Conrad's lifetime, making a card for each animal with its name and facts about its life, families, and habitats. Then they drove to Walmarts, those contemporary consumer embodiments of Manifest Destiny in all 50 states, often stopping to spend the night. To entice travelers to shop in its stores, Conrad explained to Neymar, uh, Walmart allows people to camp in its parking lots. And each night, the parking lots fill with a mix of high-end campers and homeless families living in their cars. 
To perform the ritual, Conrad plays the field recordings, returning the coos, grunts, wails, calls, and songs of the disappeared and disappearing animals to the air. They bathe in the sounds of extinct vibrations, moving a set of speakers slowly up their body from foot to head before entering the Walmart, still listening to the recordings on headphones. Moving in spiral against the grid of the aisles, they walk until they reach the center of the store and then kneel or lie down to write, remaining open to whatever interactions might arise from being a large, queer, glittering body on the floor of a Walmart during regular store hours. On Earth, Conrad tells Naaman, the sounds of animals are rapidly being overwhelmed by the sounds of humans and their machines, and we are affected by these missing vibrations without knowing it. As evidence, they offer the rapture they feel when listening to the field recordings in spite of never having seen many of the animals in person. Conrad is troubled by this pleasure, an ambivalence they associate with the guilt of having so far survived the AIDS pandemic. The animals are not coming back, they say. How can we find a way to love the world anyway? Then Naaman plays the sound of baby rhinoceroses, and it's such a funny, tender, surprising sound, the two of them can't help laughing. Conrad's rituals, like most rituals, contain an element of absurdity. It would be easy in the midst of our ongoing emergency to ridicule them, dismiss them as useless, or even critique them as wasteful all those fossil fuels burned on the road. But I think it's a mistake to judge what Conrad calls the ancient technologies of poetry and ritual by the standards we use for direct action. The kind of work Conrad does is crucial to witness memory and survival. They help us grasp what is otherwise beyond our understanding, love, death, and hyper-objects. As a mystic and a poet, Conrad intercedes on our behalf, reconnecting us to worlds we may not even know we've lost. For another part of the extinct vibrations ritual, Conrad distributed the cards he made about the extinct animals at random around different cities. If you find one and write to the email address on the card, you will get a reply from Conrad written in the animal's voice, the poet as medium, channeling the dead. 8. Red Clocks and Chinese Boxes Lenny Zumas's novel, Red Clocks, is set in a United States where abortion and IVF have been outlawed. Fetuses have been granted full rights of personhood, and a pink wall has been erected between the U.S. and Canada to stop women from crossing the border to access reproductive care. Though it was labeled a dystopian novel, the world it describes is almost exactly like our own. In fact, our world has grown more like that of the novel since its publication in 2018. There are no blasted landscapes, no red cloaks, and no villains. In fact, it is a very funny book, raucous and lyrical, as well as heartbreaking, 
Like most laws, the policies Zumas explores remain in the deep background of our characters' lives until the moment they don't, at which point they officially and impersonally enact the violent strictures that change everything. I came to Red Clocks after witnessing the 2017 session of the Texas legislature. By witnessing, I mean I spent hours at the Capitol listening and writing things down while the kind of laws Red Clocks deals with were made in real time. A series of misogynist, faux pious outrages that included legislation forcing women who miscarry to bury their fetuses many miscarriages happen so early that the word is a misnomer, in a cemetery. I was neither a journalist nor an activist, but once I started watching, it seemed important to continue, and later, when I began to feel frozen, numb, mute, it seemed impossible to stop. Red Clocks was the first thing that broke through that smothering horror for me. But... The control of women's bodies isn't the only thing happening in Red Clocks. There's another story running in the not-so-deep background. Whales, oceans, polar ice, rain, herbs, and trees fill the book's pages. The natural world competes with the human one for our attention, and the line between the two often blurs and dissolves. Then there is the siren. Again and again, the blare of a tsunami warning system interrupts the thoughts of the characters, and the forward motion of the narrative. The threat of natural disaster hovers around the central story, framing it, filling the margins, pushing the metaphor of the title away from uteruses and toward countdowns and alarms. We are warned and warned and warned, and though it happens at regular intervals, it feels like a surprise every time. It's that Tsunami Siren, and its relationship to the rest of the novel that haunts me now. Situated in the deep background, framing the whole but continually breaking through into the present, it offers a way to think about the end of the world not as a singular, explosive event, something true only from the long view of geological time, but as a Chinese Bach or a Matryoshka doll. In a time of climate emergency, we live in a series of nested crises. When we emerge from one, the larger one is always there waiting for us. And inside the big troubles, the global rise of fascism, a kleptocratic presidency, white supremacist police violence, concentration camps on our southern border, a pandemic, the smaller crises of ordinary human life continue. A broken heart a sick child, the rent falling due. All of it framed, structured, intensified, and continually interrupted by the ongoing alarm of the climate crisis. Most of Amanda Paradise is also a Chinese box narrative, or a narrative of a Chinese box life. <laughs> After seven years of near-constant travel, C.A. Conrad writes, I pulled myself off the road when the COVID-19 pandemic struck in 2020. For several months, I stayed with my old friend, Elizabeth Kerwin, a fellow survivor of AIDS from Conrad's Philadelphia days, and now their second plague sister. 
Many of the book's poems were completed or written in that period, and three-quarters of the book is comprised of a single long poem, 72 Corona Transmutations, in which the COVID-19 pandemic, climate disaster, and C.A. Conrad's memories of friends lost to AIDS mix, compete, rhyme, overlap, and echo. Surges of paranoia, guilt, and fear float between and across time and personas. The voice in the transmutation below could be the poet, fearful of COVID, a past self, fearful of AIDS, or even a fearful, hateful bigot in the AIDS era. Did someone come in this store who has it? Does everyone working here have it? But strategies for survival and hard-won joy also slip across time and catastrophe. In the transmutation on the page opposite the lines above, we get a celebration of discipline and freedom, a victory over self-sabotage. Singing got into everything until finally my mind could not rob me of the day. These lines are not about erasing past losses or current crises. They are about, to, they are about how to go on living in those nested boxes of emergency. How to fill the little breathing space we have with song. Nine. Blue. Since March 2015, I've run the flower report on Twitter. It's a simple ritual. People take photos of whatever is blooming in their area and post them with a general location and the hashtag flower report. But in the collective, it becomes a piece of magic, a place to catch our collective breaths, a little oasis of beauty on a platform, most often a dumpster on fire. People teach each other flower names, compare common names from different countries, use the flowers as symbols or gifts or commentary on the week's difficulties. My role as anchor is to announce, encourage, appreciate, and retweet, which I do every Sunday from noon to nine-ish at night. Scrolling through the contributions every week, it has been easy for me to see the seasons shifting over the past six years, coming earlier with harsher, more erratic swings in weather and temperature. The participants feel it too. This poor, confused flower, contributors tweet about a plant blooming in January that used to bloom in March. Of course, it's not the flowers that are confused, it's us. As the years passed, the level of collective distress grew until I felt compelled to remind people they could still enjoy the beauty of a flower trying its best to adapt to new weather. The reminder became a tagline that incorporated the new political weather, too. Welcome to the Flower Report, I say every week now, where we celebrate the persistence of beauty and the beauty of persistence. In April 2014, not quite a year before I became the Flower Report anchor, <laughs> I drove an hour away from Austin to Mulshow Bend. Mulshu. Mulshu Bend to look at the most spectacular field of flowers I have ever seen. They were blue bonnets, so many of them packed together that, though blue bonnets are not particularly fragrant, I could smell them before I got out of the car. A buzzing, live scent of honey, pollen, and clove. They blanketed a huge area, acres and acres sloping into a bowl of deep electric blue. There was a path, and I walked down into the color 
and lay on the ground so I could be completely immersed in it. It's the only time in my life I have ever had enough blue. The flowers were there, I found out later, because the lake wasn't. The water that had receded in 2011 hadn't yet returned. Over many, many years, the blue bonnets surrounding the lake had bloomed and gone to seed, and the seeds had rolled into the lake where they buried themselves in the mud and waited as seeds do. When the drought came and the water disappeared, they came out of dormancy. Then, when it finally rained again, they bloomed all at once, along with the surrounding flowers that had waited out the drought. By 2016, the lake had risen again. And the flowers I had seen were gone. Ten. The cracks. On February 13th, 2021, the jet stream pushed off course by warming oceans, swerved, and a mass of air that belonged to the North Pole was exiled to Texas. Overnight, a state that rarely sees temperatures below freezing was buried in snow and ice. The storm had been predicted more than a week ahead of time, but few preparations were made. Years of profit-driven decisions and negligence at the state level resulted in more than 4 million people losing power, many for over a week. Authorities advised Texans without power to go to warming centers, but even if people were willing to risk COVID for warmth, many of the roads were impassable. There was little to no public transport. When my friend Olivia delivered firewood to her elderly neighbors in a wheelbarrow, they told her the emergency services operator had advised them to call a friend for help. By the time the snow melted two weeks later, more than 200 people, some sources estimate it as more than 800, had died from exposure, car wrecks, failed medical services, and carbon monoxide poisoning from gas and petroleum stoves kept on for warmth. My household was very, very lucky. When the rest of the houses on our block lost power, ours stayed on. Though we lost water for several days, along with the rest of the city, drained by broken pipes and dripping taps, still, we had spent two weeks thinking our power would go off at any moment, and I had watched, ashamed of my inability, or I asked myself, was it unwillingness to help? While friends across town suffered far worse. For weeks afterward, I startled awake every time a front blew in, sitting upright in bed with my heart beating fast, looking at my phone in the dark, checking the weather, checking the power, checking to make sure the crack in our increasingly brittle reality had not widened again. On one of those nights, I saw a video on Twitter with the caption, a piece of ice the size of Rhode Island has detached from the Antarctic shelf. The footage had been shot from a plane or a drone above the crevice, an endless, an endless shadow, a wavering gray-blue line in the snow going on and on, a line of silence drawn through the dumb jokes and muttered nihilism in the replies. A metaphor that was not a metaphor at all, a real crack, real ice falling into the real rising seas while we talked about other things. 
My friend James once told me that halos, those fragile golden circles floating above the heads of saints and angels, began their life in religious art as rips in the veil, the one that separates and protects the everyday world from the unbearable brightness of the divine. Gradually, they evolved into almond-shaped slits, fiery birth passages revealing the world we live in, the world portrayed in the painting to be a drab illusion. If you talk about the apocalypse on Twitter, it won't be long until someone tells you that it doesn't mean the end of the world, but a revelation, an unveiling. No one ever says what will be unveiled or whether we'll be able to stand looking at it. What would it be like even for a moment to believe that the cracks in our reality could be a passageway to something brighter, so bright that we can't see it? James is the head of the Public Defender's Office for Far West Texas, the only office of its kind in a rural territory twice the size of Maryland. At the beginning of the pandemic, he understood immediately what COVID would mean for incarcerated people and worked with a sympathetic judge to get almost everyone out of the local jail. Then he pushed successfully for an online court system. In an area where simply showing up to set a court date can cost a client three days' pay or their job, the result was a dramatic increase in compliance. Though he lives between the huge new wind farms and the new natural gas fields, James lost power for a full two weeks during the storm. The lights stayed on at the courthouse. James went on working. James loves to talk to me, with me, about his cases, but there are some things he won't tell me, or rather things he knows I do not want to hear because it is his job to defend those no one else will defend, which means the guilty as well as the innocent, the vicious as well as the hapless. He works, you could say, with those who fall through the cracks. And he works in the cracks of the system, under the radar, in a place too far away from the center of the things to come under scrutiny. He's not the only one I know who works like this within but against a violent system, quietly, in an obscurity that makes the work possible, trading purity for efficacy, jimmying open the places where the edges don't quite come together, to make room for a few more people to breathe. I can't bring myself to believe in a future world bright enough to justify losing this one any more then I can believe in a single explosive apocalypse or a hero who will rescue us at the last minute. But I trust this kind of work, ephemeral, repetitive, compromised, jerry-rigged, its many failures balanced by occasional dazzling success, and the people who do it, people who assume the world has always been in need of repair, People for whom the question is not whether or not the world is ending, but what to do next. I am not getting anyone out of jail. I am only watching and listening and writing things down. I am only looking for a way to tell the story of this ongoing ending we're living through in a way that gives us a little room to breathe. But long ago, I cast my lot with an already broken world, in need of tenderness and repair. 
And that is still the world I love. The world I will continue to love as it disappears and changes into something I can't quite recognize. Last summer, in the open space between the end of the Delta surge and the beginning of the Omicron surge, I drove six hours across Texas to visit James and to look at the West Texas sky, which is famous for its huge expanse, its dramatic weather, its darkness, and its vast number of visible stars. Half an hour up into the Davis Mountains from where James lives, there's an observatory where scientists still study the skies in spite of light pollution from the new natural gas fields. I've wanted to go to their events for years, but somehow I never managed the combination of a reservation and the right weather. No matter. This time, I didn't want to look through a telescope and a dream of other worlds. Not a colony on Mars, not the eventual death of the sun, not even the dazzle of other galaxies. I only wanted to feel small in a large place. To sit in the desert and look up at a darkening sky while all the faraway bits of brightness appeared in the deepest blue. And that is To Live in the Ending by Alyssa Harad. Seek it out in the Kenyan Review, July, August, 2022 issue. Seek it out. Uh, it's, yes, it is all the, all the things. It's all the things, as a friend of mine says. Um, and I feel incredible kinship with it. Um, there's a piece of mine which I might have read from when I first started this podcast um, two years ago, um, called Ushuaia Blue, which is a play, coincidentally, uh, inspired with interview that I did with a polar marine biologist working in Antarctica, <laughs> um, about very much this, about his um, the first cracks that he started to hear in the glaciers. Um, many years ago now, and his first, the sort of first knowledge of witnessing uh, the effects of climate change, like right before him, and um, and I had the privilege of interviewing him um, and you know, and then writing a play sort of inspired by those interviews. Um, but I think a lot about, and that play is a lot about listening to the earth and about, um, the sound waves of the ice and about moving to the tempo of the sound waves of the ice and trying to find a new way forward. And it's also about indigenous law, the, the idea of worlds that have ended, um, and kind of witnessing those worlds that have ended and telling those stories. So, so there's so much in this piece that um, I was just like, oh my, it's all these kinships that I'm feeling. Um, but also in general, I just think it's beautiful work and wanted to share it with you. Because, you know, I don't know, whoever's out there, you may not be reading the Kenyan Review for all I know. So, so this might be a good time to start if you haven't. Um, 
Anyway, uh, I just want to thank Alyssa Harad for her beautiful writing. And to say that, as always, here we are in this theater, in this place where you and I are in the dark, and I hear and wondering who you are. Thanks for listening today for night.